Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? O sovereign God, maker of heaven and earth, we turn our hearts and our attention to you as an assembled congregation. Father, it is you who made us, informed us, and fashioned us from the dust of the ground. It is you who breathed life into us. It is you who has taught us and shown us the way that we may walk, that we may be blessed. Father, I confess, though, as a people, we continually spurn your good ways and spurn your truth for things that are not good, things that are false. We trade your glory for the glory of ourselves that cannot satisfy us. We wander this earth looking for something to give us meaning and significance and purpose and fill the void that is in our heart, but it is only found in the well of living water where satisfaction can be found and quench the thirst of our souls. Father, we confess that we are small. As we saw this week, the power of the wind and the waves, the destruction that it wrought in its path, homes and buildings and even nature itself could not withstand the mighty winds. The greatest of our engineering and our efforts were powerless in the face of the storm. But Father, the psalmist says, it is you who rides on the wind and the rain. Michael and Irma and Andrew, every earthquake and tsunami are nothing. They are but drops in the bucket compared to the power that you wield in your hand. And we fall in silence in fear before your presence. Father, we thank you for the images of your grace this week. When everything was in destruction, Father, it was your common grace that sent the rescue workers, that caused the generosity of our neighbor to overflow and to send resources. Father, I pray for the churches in Mexico City, in Pensacola, in Tallahassee, the churches that know the source of life and truth, the greatest need for their souls, I pray that they are quick and empowered to be able to serve and help their neighbors, but may, may they not lack to show them their greatest need and the greatest answer that they have, which is not found in FEMA in the Red Cross, but found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be generous. May our brothers and sisters in the North American Mission Board that are sending uh, the disaster relief of the SBC may be quick to give a cup of cold water to our neighbor 
and point them to the well of living water, which is Jesus Christ. That in this devastation, that your name would be glorified in bringing lost souls and lost sheep into your sheepfold. For it is you who have died to rescue your people from their sin. And you will move heaven and earth to bring and to find your sheep that are lost. Father, as we come to you this morning to hear your word, I pray for the Holy Spirit to work in uh, my imperfection and in the imperfection of the congregation, but in the power of the perfection of the Holy Spirit who breaks down strongholds that are hidden deep in the heart and gives supernatural ears and eyes and heart May we be captivated by your word. May we gaze into your scripture to see your glory. And may we be changed. May we not yawn in the presence of infinite joy, but trade all that we have for the treasure that's hidden in a field. Father, embolden our hearts to know you better that we may go forth and make disciples. To tell our friends and our co-workers and our family of what Christ has done for us. In the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Uh, back when Denise and I were in Chicago, um, we would often, as a poor, newly married couple, wander the streets of Chicago during the summer to see what was going on. And every once in a while, we would find something new and front, something exciting to be able that would capture our attention, whether it be going to the Hancock Tower, which is the big building that looks like it's from Batman, or along Lakeshore Avenue, which is right on the river, or I'm sorry, on the Great Lakes. And every once in a while, there would be a great crowd, and we'd be like, why is this crowd standing here, and what are all these trucks? And I remember one evening, there was a uh, movie crew on the streets of Chicago, and they were filming the show Early Edition. Now, it's been a while since Early Edition was on TV, but it was a really uh, fascinating scenario that this particular guy would get the newspaper every day, but it wouldn't be today's newspaper, it would be tomorrow's newspaper. And he would started to realize what was going on, so he would read the newspaper in crime and, and trouble and whatever, he, and he would spend that day looking to affect tomorrow and all kinds of things that he was able to do because of the knowledge that he knew what was coming. Now, as Christians, we have been given incredible knowledge. The revelation of God has told us the rest of the story that, and what's coming around the bend and how we are to live today in light of tomorrow. That how we are to achieve holiness today that will prepare us for Christ's return and the fullness of his kingdom that's coming. 
Now, we are jumping into chapter 3, starting the second half of the book. Some of you are new, some of you didn't start, but halfway through chapter 2, and what he has done is all of chapter 2, he has shown us the futility of the old way of life, The, the futility to be able to find fullness in life and satisfaction in life. But he also has done this. He has pointed us to the source of fullness in life, which is the cross. The cross that looks like it's a defeat, and it looks tragic, and it doesn't feel right, but he tells us the cross was the victory that accomplished and secured the life that is to come. So we don't need to do certain things or know certain things or prohibit certain things to be, have fullness in this life today or in the life to come. We need to trust what Christ has accomplished on the cross and because of what he has accomplished on the cross in light of what that has accomplished for eternity to live lives of holiness. So what will happen is in Colossians chapter 3, over the course of the next few weeks, we will begin to look at what genuine holiness looks like. And I want you to know this morning, in this little um, snippet that we're going to be looking at, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, I want you to walk away with this truth. I want you to know that you are to live today how you will live for eternity. Holiness is not just something that's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Holiness begins today. Eternal life doesn't happen when Jesus comes back. Eternal life begins today. And as we look at this, this life of genuine holiness that we live, and how do we live today like we will live for eternity? One, you can see what I did here with the past, present, and future. See, very, very witty, out of the box, right? One, adjust your present mindset. It starts by adjusting your present mindset. Two, remember your past deliverance. Remember your past deliverance. And third, anticipate, look ahead, anticipate your future glory. Adjust your past mindset, your present mindset, adjust your present... I'm going to get it. I wrote it. It's on the, I can't even read it on the wall. Adjust your present mindset, remember your past deliverance, and anticipate your future glory. When I was younger, I used to think when I would hear verses and the promises that we read to the children this morning from verses like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life. I used to think that eternal life was something down the road, something that will happen when I die. But I realize now, because of the words of Christ, that if you have been united to Christ by faith in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, eternal life begins today. Your eternal life begins now. How? Because Jesus' promise that he gives us in John chapter 17, his final instructions before his crucifixion, just hours before his death, he said this, this is eternal life. 
that they may know you, the only true God, the Father, and that Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Ocean Park, if you are united to Christ by faith, trusting not in yourself and what you can do and what you bring to the table and what you've done in the past, but you trust by faith in the work of Jesus Christ and all the chips are on the table, everything is in on Jesus, he's your only hope in life and salvation, and you have been born again, you have been regenerated, then eternal life has already begun for you. It's already begun, but it's not yet what it will be. It's, there's more to come, as Sinatra says, the best is yet to come. We have quoted Sinatra twice, in Sunday school and in the sermon. Uh, those might be a record for good old blue eyes. If you have been united to Christ's resurrection by faith, eternal life begins today. And that eternal life that you begin to experience now changes how you see the world. It changes your present mindset because it gives you two things. It gives you a new focus. It gives you a new focus and it gives you a new standard. Notice the new focus of the present mindset that we have in verse 1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The new focus, the mindset of a Christian is not spatial, it's eschatological, um, sorry, eschatological. Easy for me to say, right? In other words, this. We are not to call to seek after a geographic location, heaven. We are called to seek the one who reigns in heaven. See the difference? We're not called to seek heaven. We're called to seek the one who reigns in heaven. And his name is Jesus Christ, who reigns at the right hand of the Father. Our desire, our striving, our effort, our insistence is to see Jesus Christ reign over all the world and see him honored as he deserved in our hearts, in our homes, in our communities, in our nation, in our world. We want to see the reign of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. Paul says this in Psalm 1, or David said it in Psalm 110. Paul quotes it this morning in our text. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus has been given and bestowed with the greatest honor in all of the universe, and he has been given the position of authority over all creations. This is why at Christmas we sing, he is king of kings, and what? Lord of lords. There are powers and authorities in kings and nation, but they are a drop in the bucket, Isaiah says, compared to the glory and the power and the authority that Jesus Christ has now that has been given him by the Father. He is reigning today, and we as Christians are called to seek and desire his reign today. Living today like we will live for eternity requires that we focus our interest on Jesus Christ. 
and bring our minds and our aims and our ambitions and our desires and our whole outlook to be centered on the fact that we are under the authority and the reign of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in us, in thought, in word, or deed, that is not under the authority of Jesus Christ, whether you like it or not, and whether you acknowledge it or not. Jesus is authoritative over everything. This very command, because of this, we can rest assured. We don't have to worry about the basics of life because we have a king who reigns. We don't have to worry about the clothes that we put on our body or the food that we put in our body because we have a Father in heaven who has given authority to Christ to give us what we need. And we have the promise that when we seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, reflecting his character in our lives, what will happen? All these things, all the worries about our bodies, how we're going to clothe ourselves, how we're going to clothe our children, how we're going to feed ourselves, how we're going to feed our children, all of those basic necessities of life, our king knows and he is sovereign and he will provide and he says, seek to bring all things under my domain. Trust me. Live today knowing that the kingdom will come in full and the kingdom is already in our midst, as Jesus says. This does not mean, though, that you are detached from the things of this earth. But it means that you are beginning to bring all things under the reign and enjoy the blessings of the kingdom now and again, the best is yet to come. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons some 125 years ago, said this, Seek those things which are above, that is, heavenly joys. Seek to know on earth the peace of heaven, the rest of heaven, the victory of heaven, the service of heaven, the communion of heaven, the holiness of heaven, you may have foretaste of all of these things. Seek after them. Seek, in a word, to prepare for the heaven which Christ is preparing for you. People, get ready. Jesus is coming. And he has told us he's coming. He's told us to prepare for his coming. He says, seek the kingdom that's already here. Bring all things under the authority of our king. Ocean Park, if you know that you will spend eternity in heaven under the rule and reign of a sovereign Christ, that changes and that should change how you live today. If it doesn't change, that should be a red light. That should be a warning signal that I know I'm going to heaven, but it has no uh, relevance today. That's a big problem. But if you know that you will be in the sweetness, in the glory, in the rest, in the beauty of heaven, you won't seek your own selfish pleasures but you will seek today to please the sovereign Christ in your home, at your work, in your play. 
You won't seek to honor the powers and the rulers of this world that are quickly fading away, but you will honor Christ who is reigning now and will reign forever in eternity in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. Eternity will affect how you live today. If you have been raised with Christ, you have been given a new focus to experience the reign in your heart and your soul and your mind today. The life of Christ will be reflecting his rule. You'll be investing in his kingdom. You'll be embracing his values as you will for all eternity. You will today. The implications of the resurrection on your present mindset not only give you a new focus, but they also give you a new standard. The rules are different. Notice verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not our things that are on earth. The life we have in Christ permeates everything. From our thoughts to our values, our aspirations to our desires, our ethics to our will. The life we have in Christ reorders everything. I remember Sinclair Ferguson on Sunday nights in his Sermon on the Mount says what Christ does when he comes into your life is deconstructs everything of your, yourself before he reconstructs you in his image and in his likeness. And he is reconstructing us in the form of the kingdom that is to come today to prepare us for that day when we are in the kingdom when you experience the resurrection life of Christ, you experience a new thinking and values and appetite and attitudes. The word here, to set your mind on, has the essence of reorienting your life around something. And this mindset guides everything that you do, whether in your thoughts or your words or in your deeds. Much like when you're married... You go from, it's just me. I was a college guy doing stupid stuff, running around, playing basketball, playing video games till 3 in the morning, dragging my carcass to 8 o'clock classes, regretting that I stayed up till 3 in the morning playing video games. But when I got married, everything changed. I no longer thought of me. I thought of we. I thought of her. I thought of our life together. And it changed everything. All my perspectives changed because I had a new view of the future. I had a new identity. I was a married man. I wasn't a single slob hanging out with my buddies in the, in the dorm. That was fun, but it was a reorientation. I set my minds on being married and married life. Amen, brothers, right? Amen. Yes, absolutely, not yet. You got a few years. But when we do this, we reoriented our life around something. Notice at the end of verse uh, 2, it says, not on things that are on earth. Now, we're not doing 5 and 6, but if you were reading in context, 5 and 6 really explains what's going on here in chapter 2, or verse 2. It, notice what he says, put to death what is earthly in you. Don't set your, verse 2, don't set your mind on things that are on the earth. And then he explains, he gives some illustrations. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Paul tells them that if you have been united to Christ by faith in his death and his burial and resurrection, you do not, uh, you no longer seek the sinful desires of the flesh or make the good things of this world the ultimate things of this world. See, we can desire evil things and we know what those evil things are. We're church-going people. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with girls who do. We don't do stuff like that. That's bad. And I think we're very, a lot of us can agree outwardly what the sexual morality and impurity and passion and evil desires. We know what those things are. But also, covetousness comes in there. Now, Scott and I are working on a sermon on covetousness, so he's going to tell you all about it at the end of November. But covetousness says, I don't trust God, and I don't believe my neighbor deserves what they receive because I want what I want. My neighbor's wife, my neighbor's job, his donkey, or his Mercedes, or his uh, uh, home, or his job, or his bank account, or his wardrobe, or you name it. We want what we want, and those might be good things that we want, but when we take good things and make them ultimate things, we make them worthless things. And what Paul, or Paul is telling them is don't seek the evil desires of this world, that we know what they are, but don't take the good gifts that our Father gives us and make them ultimate things. We can do that with church. We can do that with family. We can do that with sports. We can do that with music. We can do that with all kinds of things that the Lord has given us good things. But when he eleva elevate their status to ultimate things, we dethrone God who, in Christ who deserves, is the only one who deserves that place. So he's saying, do not seek the sinful things of this world, of the flesh, and don't make good things the ultimate things and commit idolatry. Somebody who has experienced the resurrection life does not find um, finds their purpose and their meaning in Christ. Notice it says, seek the things that are above. The resurrection, the very fact that you have been united by faith to the death and burial and resurrection, chapter 2, means that you have a new life that is reoriented around the triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And it changes everything. It is the lens by which you look at the world. It is your desires. It changes everything. It causes you to judge everything different, a good judge, and, and, and uh, everything by the standards of the, the new creation which now you belong to, not the old creation which you have been redeemed from. The things that matter are no longer transitory things. Material possessions, fleeting earthly honors and the praise of men and women. Short-lived power and influence that we hold for only a moment. Those united to Christ no longer find their purpose and their meaning in the things of this earth but they find their purpose and meaning and significance, their identity in Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. They belong to Jesus. And that is how they are known. The resurrection, and we're going to see this, but I'm going to give you a sneak preview. The resurrection has a new standard for living. Today and for eternity. 
Notice verse 12. We're called to put on humility and meekness. We wrap ourselves in those things. Those are the ethics of the kingdom. Verse 13. We're patient and forgiving with one another. Verse 14. We are rich and generous in our love that so it composes a beautiful symphony to the glory of our conductor, Jesus Christ. We have peace. And the peace of Jesus Christ rules the throne of our heart and we're thankful for it. Verse 16, scriptures, as we saw in Sunday school, we pour the scriptures into the depth and recesses of our hearts so that we overflow in a beautiful song. In verse 17, we do everything. I mean everything. In Jesus' name, motivated by a heart of gratitude. You've probably heard the saying Uh, That person is so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. And there might be, there are people that are like that. I just can't wait to float in my cloud and play the harp. And they're like, you're like, stop it. But true biblical living, when you live today how you will live for eternity, what happens is we are so eternally minded that we are of incredible earthly good. Because it changes everything, it reorients everything to be as we were designed and we were created by our Lord. Joe Rigney, in his book, Things of Earth, it's in the library, I can't recommend it enough, He says this, a mind that is set on the things above spends an awful lot of time thinking about things on the earth. Family, neighbors, church, job, earthly responsibilities. The person governed by heavenly things intentionally and deliberately considers and engages in those things. Then this heavenly mindset is profoundly earthly, but is fundamentally oriented by the glory of Christ. When we are thinking of the reign of Christ and the priorities of Christ, it changes how we invest our time. It changes how we do our schoolwork, from kindergarten, how we read, to college and beyond. It changes how we raise our children, how we date, how we marry, how we say goodbye to our spouses. It changes how we work and how we play, how we manage our finances, how we, what we put and pour into our mind. When we have a heavenly, eternal mindset, it changes all of that for the better. And it brings Christ's reign on earth and in our hearts as it is in heaven. We're never called to escape this world. The monks who went into the desert and did nothing but pray all day blew it because we're called to be salt and we're called to be light in this world to show the difference that Christ's reign makes in our hearts and our lives and our homes. Every dimension of our life is affected by the eternal reality that Christ is coming and he is reigning and that he has saved me by his grace. We infuse our earthly life 
even the most mundane things with eternal perspective and the beautiful aroma of the gospel everywhere we go. Every interaction we have, every reaction, every time we have extra moments, how do we invest that time eternally? We don't have to live consumed by this world by the praise of this world, by the priorities of the world, trying to find security in this world. We don't have our heavenly, uh, we don't have our significance in material possessions that will only turn to dust and fall through our fingers. Our significance is the fact that we belong to Jesus and we have the joy and the opportunity to invest in the lasting satisfaction of Christ's kingdom. And we have the promise that this is not something that we have to beg and plead our Heavenly Father to give us. Please, 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 I'll be good. Let me have a little taste of the kingdom. Jesus tells us, fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen? You can infuse that kingdom into adjusting your present mindset today that you will live today how you will live for all eternity. We're called to adjust our present mindset, but we're also called to remember our past deliverance. It's said that nothing lasts forever in a 48-hour news cycle. Things like natural disasters and elections and monumentous occasions in mankind quickly evaporate and fade away when the next big story breaks. Why is this? I think ultimately it's because we're a forgetful people. We talk about the children. We have to remember the promises of God. Why? Because we forget them so easy. And we have to be deliberate and we have to make markers to help us remember. We have slogans. Remember the Alamo. Remember the Maine. Remember the Titans. We have days like December 7th and September 11th and the last Monday in Maine to help us remember. We have museums like the Holocaust Museum and the Museum of Slavery that we remember lest we forget the horrors of of past generations and we are doomed to repeat their same mistakes today. Just as Americans, we are called to remember the horrors and triumphs of our past. We as Christians are called to remember our past deliverance because we so quickly can forget. We have to remember our past deliverance in order to two things, to die to self-reliance and to trust Christ's work. Notice verse 3, Paul reminds them of their past. For you have died. This is a spiritual death that they have experienced. Brothers and sisters, if you are united by faith, you are no longer self-reliant. At the cross, your kingdom was graciously defeated and it was nailed to the cross Paul, in another letter, says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. You have died. But Christ lives in me. Amen? The life I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith 
and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. At the cross, our sinful self-rule was graciously and mercifully defeated by the Good Shepherd. And the penalty for our cosmic treason was paid and satisfied by his death. By God's grace, he conquered your kingdom and overthrew your rebellion and disbanded your autonomy. Therefore, we must be constant in constant remembering that we have died to self-reliance, that we have died to self-rule, that we have died to self-love, and that we live to Christ's reign. Notice that we have died to self-reliance, for you have died, and then he continues, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You now live to Christ's reign. Your place in the kingdom is secure. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove that his death was worthy of you. It was paid. It is finished. Because now your life is hidden with Christ. This is not a phrase, hidden with Christ, is not a phrase that's used throughout the uh, New Testament. This is the only time that this is, shows up. But it really reflects a um, contemporary, or contemporary to Colossians, understanding of Jewish apocalyptic uh, teaching. In other words, that this prophet had a glimpse of the purposes that God was bringing and that he glimpsed it and saw it and then was communicating it. This, what is coming by the purposes and the will of God. Let me give you an example of what this is. Some of you may be familiar I think Sally had a, a strange look when she saw the, the Russian. Uh, maybe she didn't. I did, she did not have a strange look. But you, when you put them all together, what does it look like? It looks like one little doll. And then you pop it, and, and, the, you, and you can spend a lot of money and get like 40 of them. And ultimately, until you get one little tiny doll that's hidden inside all of them, that, until you, that is hidden until you, it is revealed at some time. Brothers and sisters, like the little tiny doll is hidden within the larger dolls, a believer is hidden in the safety and security and providence of Jesus Christ. He is our life and we are hidden in him. Your identity is safe in the shelter of the Lord of creation and the Lord of new creation. It's the very thing the psalmist read to us. Larry read Psalm 27. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high on a rock. Psalm 31, a few verses later, or chapters later. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge, who hide themselves in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of the presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in the shelter from the strife of tongues. Ocean Park, you are free from the fear of the future because of the surety and security of Christ's shelter. When you are hidden in Christ, you are safe from the final desperate attacks of his enemies. As we sing, no power of hell nor scheme of man can what? Can never 
pluck you from his hand. No matter how much rain falls, no matter how high the floods come up, no matter how much the winds blow and beat on the house, it's not your house. It's Jesus that you're hidden in. He hides you in the rock, and the rock will not be shaken. You don't need to sacrifice your body and soul to appease the fickle gods of this world for their benefits, for their favor, for their value, for their worth. You don't need to placate counterfeit gods who promise you success and safety and satisfaction and snatch it away right as you're about to grasp it. Why? Because you belong to Jesus. And your life is hidden with him. Growing up, we used to sing this song, Now I belong to Jesus Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, not for the rest of my life, but for eternity. Ocean Park, if this is true, if it is true that your life is hidden with Christ, you're free to obey Jesus. Your identity is in the fact that Jesus saved you and secured you. You're free to obey without fear that you will fail, without fear that you will stumble, because I promise you, you will. I know that because I do it all the time. Because I do fail. I do wander. I do uh, succumb to temptation. But I know this. For me and for you, our identity is not in what we do. Our identity is what Christ has done at the cross. His fullness has passed into our emptiness his righteousness into our sinfulness, his life into our death. Therefore, we're free to recklessly throw our lives into the hands of the one who is strong and true and can hold us fast today and eternity. Ocean Park, since you've been raised with Christ, you're able to adjust your present mindset and you're able to remember your past deliverance in order that you may live today how you will live for eternity. And finally, you also, we also see in verse 4 that we anticipate our future glory. There will be a day that is coming. His promises are sure, and we have read the end of the story, that God vanquishes his enemy and he forever silences the storm of tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and the sword. And on that day when Christ returns, he will bring to his side his sons and his daughters. And Paul doesn't just say, adjust your present thinking and look back, but he says, fix your eyes on on the coming glory that, that is appearing when Christ comes and when glory comes. Notice this in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Paul gives us a, a, the centrality of the coming of Christ for those who are united to him. He doesn't say Christ is food for your life or joy for your life or the object of your life. What does he say? Christ is your life. Just as Jesus told Martha at the tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
Jesus is the source of our life. Without him, we're dead in our sin, and there's no life on our own. Jesus is the substance of our life. Every thought and every word and every deed is the result of Christ moving and quickening our hearts. He is the sustenance of our life. He is the bread and he is the water that sustains the Christian life. He infuses power and perseverance for all who are hidden in him. And Christ is the object of our life. As Paul says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ. Spurgeon again says this, as um, speeds the ship towards his port, so hastes the believer towards the haven of his Savior's bosom. As flies the arrow to its goal, so flies the Christian toward the perfecting of his fellowship with Jesus Christ. As the soldier fights for his captain, is crowned by his captain's victory, so the believer contends for Christ and gets his triumph out of the triumph of his master. The life that we live is the life that we have received from Christ. You exist to know Christ and to make him known. You are preparing today to dwell with him for eternity. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Then we, we will appear with him in glory, the coming glory that we anticipate. The sons of God who on this side of eternity have been marginalized and demonized and criminalized will be honored and cherished and celebrated. Those who have emptied their life for the name of Christ will be made full and made whole. Those who have suffered lack for the name of Christ will be made full. Those who have mourned in the kingdom will be comforted in God's eternal kingdom. Those who are poor and persecuted for righteousness' sake will possess the kingdom. Those who are meek and merciful and pure in heart will be blessed to see God's glory in the kingdom of heaven. If Christ is your identity this morning, and you live today, you will not be disappointed when you don't achieve the things of this world because you have unshakable confidence that the pain and the shortcomings and the suffering of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Paul says towards the end of his life, shortly before his execution, for this momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory that will blow our minds. As we look not to the things that are, un, that are seen, the earthly, but the things that are unseen, the heavenly that we set our minds on. For the things that are seen are transient, passing, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Ocean Park, we have no idea how spectacular our future it will be, because, but we know that it is so worth it. Every tear, every pain, every disappointment that we've experienced at the hands of this world, we know that we have been given little foretastes of that glory that we will, when we assemble with the sweetness of God's people today, when we catch fleeting glimpses of the glory of our God as we gaze through the window of Scripture, as we enjoy the good gifts of a good Father, are we setting our minds on the coming glory? Ocean Park, since you have been raised with Christ, you're able to adjust your mindset, to remember your past, and to anticipate your future glory. This past week, Apple rolled out on their phones 
a new thing called um, screen time. And uh, my family and I have installed, I've installed it uh, on my family's phone. I can't pull it up for here. But what it does is it goes, it runs in the background and it shows you everything you do, you do on your phone. Productivity, social media, all kinds of things. And then it tells you how much you've spent that day on those things. And it shows you how much you've spent that week. You can see that you spent four hours on Instagram today and about 45 seconds on your Bible app. Hopefully you're reading your paper Bible that day. Let me ask you this. If Apple rolled out screen time for your life that could monitor every thought, every action, every deed that you did, are you setting your mind up for eternity? Are you seeking the things above? Are you seeking Christ? Or are you setting your mind on things of the earth? I know when I looked at my screen time, I wasn't happy with the results. And I'm sure if I looked at the screen time of my life, I wouldn't either. May your prayer be this week. Set my mind on things that are above where Christ is. May I remember what Christ has done. May that change how I live today and prepare me how I will live for eternity.